Welcome back to the Carter Exchange by Medtronic. So, so maybe this brings us to the next point: is the the, uh, the pump assistant um, beating heart surgery. Who is who is pro uh, doing that kind of procedure? Who the three of you uh, have done this? Think it's a good idea? To... I did one. I did one last week, uh, but I okay. hadn't done one for about six months before that. Um, a redo operation uh, needed a single graft to the right coronary, three arterial grafts of the left system done five years ago, all open, now has new disease in the right coronary. They tried to stand it, close the right coronary, couldn't get it open, relentless angina, needs a PDA graft. So I got in there and everything was absolutely stuck and I couldn't get to the PDA um, without um, trying to divide adhesions that were, couldn't be divided. Uh, so we cannulated the aorta and the right atrium, emptied the heart, then we could compress the acute margin of the heart, see the PDA and put a graft on, and then a heart string on the, prox on the aorta and we're done. So right. there is a role for decompressing the heart without having to arrest it. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things it does is it creates space in the mediastinum, and that can be very helpful in oddball situations. I right. don't use it as a routine, but some surgeons do. Yeah. And do you think it's for good for teaching? Of pump surgery to do it pump assisted, Mark. Yeah, you know, thanks, Peter. Yeah, I don't use it. I think only in exceptional circumstances, as as John was relaying. Uh, I think there's other ways to to teach. I, I respect programs that do it, but there's no real evidence support. Even you know, off pump surgery is a great. I didn't comment because the 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 contributions of, of Terry and John were excellent, but it's really a must, right? It is uh, not only a lifesaver when you have like a, a diffused atherosclerosis, but you really got to know this stuff because it's it's really important in acute coronary syndrome. So right? patients come in and we don't yet have an antidote to Ticagalor and they're loaded with this and that. And it's a wonderful thing. You mitigate both the acute ischemia and the anti the, the double, dual, or triple antiplatelet agent. So it's really a wonderful thing for ACS patients. And further, it is a platform to move to non-sternotomy cabbage, right? We have a peer-to-peer -peer program and I always say, don't bring someone who's stopping the heart and puts ice on the heart to do their bypass, right? You cannot jump from that to doing three or four grafts through a five centimeter thoracotomy incision. Ain't gonna happen. Right. So off-pump surgery is, is, is tremendously important. And I think it can be taught. There are many ways uh, to do it, whether you do an LED first or whether you start with other vessels first, which you would do because you're afraid of stretching or injuring the LED. I mean, there's many ways to do this. And I would finish by saying there's even advantages. When you do, as John was saying, when you do composite complex Y-graft multi-arterial based revascularization, Actually, staying off pump gives you your measures much easier than when you're on pump. There's less chance. When you've done it several times, it's less, you're less likely to mess up with graphs that are too long or too short if you stay off pump the whole time than, than if you go on pump. And then, oh, my God, I didn't think the heart was that big when yeah. you start coming off. Right. Yeah, yeah. You decompress the heart. And, and maybe, so this brings us to the, the, the other um, you know, aspect that we did need to discuss is the hybrid revascularization. You know, not everything... Is bad probably what what you can do with stenting. Uh, I know that John has you know um, tried to do a randomized study um, looking at hybrid revascularization. It's it's hard. It's hard to do the study. It's 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 also hard to organize it. John. Yeah, we we actually got a, a large NIH grant uh, in order to uh, 
uh, enroll patients in a randomized trial of um, hybrid revascularization versus multivessel PCI. We were targeting patients that typically had two vessel disease, LED plus something else. And most of those patients come to the hospital and get uh, two stents or more than two stents and go home and they never have a heart team conversation. Um, so we wanted to go after that patient population and randomize them to have either their usual stenting uh, or a robotic bypass to the LED and then a stent to the non-LED uh, vessel. Uh, long story short, despite a large network of centers, um, well, over 50 centers, enrollment was slow. Uh, and it, it, I think it boiled down to the simple fact that we were relying on cardiologists to enroll patients in a surgical trial. The cardiologists had to come up with the patients um, and identify those that they were willing uh, to have a 50-50 chance of not doing their two stents in. Uh, and and that, that didn't play out well. Enrollment was too slow. And in the end, uh, with some new rules related to allowable time for enrollment and follow-up of a single RO1 grant, uh, NIH uh, basically shut down the, the, the trial. Okay. We enrolled a total of 200 patients. They're still being followed. Um, we'll present uh, five-year data in, a little, in not too very long. Um, but it's um, you know it was disappointing. Yeah, I think I think hybrid has a role though. Um, yeah, and, and there are cases, for instance, that I still do. A patient will come with you know uh, a diagnostic cath demonstrating a very complex uh, calcified proximal LED stenosis and an easy type A mid right stenosis. Right. And I'll put yeah. a lima on the LED, and the cardiologist will go back and stent that right. And it's sort of a deal we make up front uh, with my, you know, between us and also with the patient who does avoid a sternotomy. Uh, And, um, you know, generally speaking, those have been quite successful. We do something like, um, I do about 50 robotic cases a year and probably, you know, 20 of them are hybrid, something like that. Okay. So, so Teresa, if you would do a hybrid revascularization, would you do bypass surgery first and then stenting or the other way around? Uh, Can I... Can I speak to hybrid generally just yes, first? Yeah. Um, my chief, Willie Keon, many years ago, about 35, 40 years ago, when I was in my training, said hybrid, hybrid was coming out then too. And he said, it's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, I believe in a reverse hybrid. I believe in two arterial grafts and stenting the third. Okay. okay. With my idea of a hybrid. And thirdly, if you listen to Frank Suter, and talk about his hybrid population, it's unbelievable. It is the way hybrid surgery should be. It is these poor patients who are disasters regarding comorbidities. Sure, he does the lean-to-lean, but they are so complex that you can't open their chest. To me, this is the way hybrid should be done. I, with horror, hear of some Surgeons say, well, this 45-year-old didn't want his chest cut. He wanted to get back to work, so he's had two stents and one limit LED. This, I think, is wrong. I'm, I'm right. sorry to sound so, so, yeah. so adamant about this, but uh, there is a place for it. And the patients who are so uh, horribly conflicted that they can have a minimally invasive limit LED and sing the rest, absolutely, absolutely should be done. And this is okay. this is the one I that I deal with. Excellent. So maybe maybe when we come to the end of this podcast, is that um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question about the future, which is hard, of course, to predict. Uh, 
Um, in November, there will be the results presented from the FAME 3 trial. The FAME 3 trial is coronary stenting with FFR measurement versus coronary bypass surgery. So it's, it's a little bit like the Syntex study, but then with FFR for PCI. Again, randomized PCI versus coronary bypass surgery. And now, um, what what do you predict the outcome will look like? It's, so it's complex, three-vessel disease, three-vessel disease. Cabbage will be done based on the FFR or based on no. the angiography? No. Uh, cabbage will be based on angiography. Um, and PCR will be done also based on angiography and FFR. So we'll see more grafts than stents, more vessels grafted than vessels stented, a lower incidence of immediate periprocedural complications with PCI, better relief of angina, especially over time with cabbage, and a trend towards a mortality benefit of cabbage at the end of follow-up. So the follow-up, the results that will be presented is a one-year results, um, and the endpoint is May. So it's mortality, yeah. it's stroke, it's myocardial infarction, and revascularization. So Mark, yeah, so yeah, Peter, I, if I may I jump in, I'm, I'm very familiar with Fame Three. I, I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't think we should ever present one-year data as a primary uh, uh, endpoint uh, for cabbage versus PCI. Yeah. Uh, well, they will follow patients for three and five years as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should start at five. Okay, yeah, good point. But Mark, what do yeah, you think? it'll be it'll be neutral. There's no no doubt about it. I'm quite familiar with Fame Three. Fame Two, interestingly, is a bit of a coarse historical capsule as to what a DSMB should not be doing. Fame Two was stopped a little bit too early, just maybe about 10, 20 patients too early, because the uh, combined the composite outcome was MI revascularization and death. And that was significantly in favor of the FFR-guided revascularization versus anatomic-guided. Uh, however, as you know, you know, repeat revascularization is not, it's a somewhat subjective outcome. If someone comes in and you know you've had this, they've had this versus that, you may have an easier threshold, bring them to your angiogram, do something about it. So there's a lot of anchoring in the mind that goes on, right? So unfortunately, the myocardial infarction p-value was just shy of being less than 0 0.005. And that is a moment when we stopped Laos 3 recently uh, as the, the surgeon on the DSMB, I was always afraid that I didn't want to do that type of mistake, that you miss, you're just shy of missing an outcome. Anyways, FAME 3 came, and FAME 3, as you and John said, will be at one year. Uh, and I can assure you that the results are going to be non inferior I am certain. There's no reason why they would be. And I think they're irrelevant. And as John says, uh, you know, it's it's a storm in a cup of water or it's sailing in a bathtub, right? Uh, really, let's remember the average American male who is 64 years of age, which is usually around the age of randomization of trials. If you look at life tables in the U.S., I'm not talking about Japan or France or Denmark. I'm talking about the U.S. where the life expectancy is not that great. Unfortunately, as we all know, they still get 20 years to live. The average life expectancy of a 64-year-old male in the U.S. is about two decades. So one-year data doesn't tell you anything. And why don't we take one two days data? You know, pain at two days or physical functioning at two days. Obviously, PCI is going to be better, right? There's no question. This but, is not what we've revascularized for. Might as well have a medical group, which would be better than PCI probably. Yeah. 
Exactly. So maybe the last, uh, the, Teresa, what, do you, what, what is your prediction? Totally, totally agree with both Mark and John, especially, I, I, it's pointless to, to publish a one-year result. It's going to skew the, in favor of, of doing PCI. And it, it just, it, it's just, it's pointless because it's not that time that where things happen. It's, it's five, it's 10, 15, 20 years. It just, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Good. Okay, well, we'll see what, what the outcome will be in, in November. Um, um, so, great discussion here today. Thanks very much, um, Professor Mark Ruel from Ottawa, Dr. Tr Professor Teresa Kieser from Calgary, and, and John Puskas from New York. Great having you here today. Um, great discussions, and great to be here on the podcast. So, no slides. That's the major advantage that we have here. Um, so, not a lot of preparation, uh, but, you know, a great, a valuable discussion. And thank you all very much for joining here today. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. I want to thank you and Medtronic for always thinking out of the box and supporting surgeons and science within our field. So we're, we're very thankful for that. And, and personally, with all your efforts and Eric and, and others in minimal invasive bypass graphing. Yeah, I want to reiterate that. Medtronic has been a major supporter of, you know, the care of the cardiovascular patient, whether it be with the stents that you folks make. Uh, or with the surgical instruments that you uh, provide and with the educational support that you provide to a lot of different venues, including the International Coronary Congress. So thank you. Thank you very much. Our last pitch, we're going to have our in-person International Coronary Congress meeting, the seventh annual meeting in New York City uh, in the first weekend of December this year. So maybe you can open the borders for us, uh, John. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> We're still allowed to travel to the U.S., but hopefully that will change soon. We hope so. so. Yeah. Well, thanks very much again, and um, and see you hopefully soon. Maybe at the ESCTS yes. meeting in Barcelona. Yes. Then. Barcelona. Good. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to your preferred platform. You can also get more info about today's podcast and upcoming shows at medtronic.com slash cardiacexchange. Thanks for listening.